Hello, everyone. Welcome to You Do What? The podcast that takes a dive into the lives of regular everyday people with unique careers or lifestyles. My name is Dan Hiltwine, and I've been a martial arts instructor for over 30 years. And along the way, I've had the opportunity to meet the most amazing and interesting people. And I thought it would be cool to sit down and share their lives with you. Sitting with me today is my friend and fellow martial artist, our executive producer, Mr. Bill Jones, and also my 18-year-old grandson, Matthew. Matthew is finishing up high school this year, and I thought this would be a great way to help him figure out his path in life, introduce him to all different kinds of careers, and uh, open the door for him to figure out what he wants to do. Today, we're sitting in with Jay Fitch. Not only is Jay a fellow martial artist and friend, he has a unique career. Jay is a, a commercial airline pilot, and he's going to share with us what life is like commanding a Boeing 747 and flying around the world. So let's welcome Jay Fitch. Thank you. Nice to be here. I appreciate this. Me. Really do. Um, how'd you get started with this? How'd you get into flying? Well, I would say probably most of my interest came from my, from my dad. My dad had his private pilot's license, which is the recreational license that you get. And he, he had that, you know, I, I was told I went up on a small airplane when I was just a few months old. Don't remember anything from it, but um, that was supposedly my first flight. And then uh, my dad was in the military, so we were always going back and forth. Uh, he was based in Germany. So from a very young age, I was doing, you know, long transatlantic flights as a kid. And it was something I'd always just kind of had a, a positive image of flying okay. from a young age. And then um, as time went on, uh, we actually, our next door neighbors, when we were in Germany, was a German family, and uh, he, uh, he was a Lufthansa pilot. And all his son wanted to do was be a pilot. We were best friends growing up. It's all he talked about. He played everything, airplanes. And that kind of just like kept in the forefront of my mind over the years. And I got to about 15, 16 years old, was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. Job-wise, I gave flying lessons a try. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, once I got to my first solo, which is the first time you fly the plane by yourself, uh, I, I just knew it was for me. I knew it was something I loved and I knew it was something I wanted to pursue. And so I went to college for that and, you know, just saw it all the way through. It's, you know, to this day, you know, st- having done it now for you know, 25 years, still love it. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. What was the first plane that you flew? So the first one I flew was a Cessna 152. So it's a little two-seater high-wing airplane with a propeller. You know, pretty low power. Uh, probably the fastest it could cruise out is about 100 miles an hour. Um, you know, and uh, take off about 50 miles an hour, land 60 wow. miles that an hour. That seems so. awfully slow. Yeah, it's like, slow. If you're telling me you're flying 100 miles an hour, I'm thinking... You don't need to go faster. <laughs> like, uh, no, yeah, no, it 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 is pretty. I mean, you would if you were flying into a stiff headwind over an interstate, you're probably getting passed by the cars below you. So wow, that's crazy. <laughs> what really saves the time in the plane is uh, going point to point. Right. You know, in a small plane like that, more so than you know, just uh, just the speed that you're able to achieve. Now, obviously, you know they go way up from there, but that's kind of your basic trainer airplane, forgiving slower so you have more time to decide so okay. it's a good good starting point okay so now you go from that tiny little plane to today's time what are you flying today <laughs> so today i fly a boeing triple seven uh you know cruise speeds are generally going to be about you know 560 miles an hour or wow. so um 
And, uh, you know, with a strong tailwind, you know, you'll see speeds get up in the high sixes, strong headwind in the mid fours, usually, you know, 450 or so. And uh, up to our, our, our takeoff weights are up to about 500,000 pounds. Wow, yeah. I didn't realize that's a lot of weight. Yeah, they're huge. They carry can carry a lot of cargo, uh, a lot of people. The the bigger there's a few models of them. Uh, the bigger models gonna have you know about uh, three hundred and eighty people on it. So, wow. yeah, yeah, it's uh, mostly used for ultra long haul flying. You know, Asia. We do some uh, Europe, some South America. Uh, Japan. If we were flying to China, more from the East Coast, it would be going to China right now. Okay. India. So, well, that's pretty wild. That the the size, you know, because I, I was never aware until um, my brother he owned a courier company, and I was never aware that like airline ship packages and th- that you know that whole underneath the belly is not just full of people's luggage, but people shipping things, pallets and all kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a big part of their business. Is you know. They try and fill it up with people, and then they'll fill up with, you know, cargo for the rest of the way, especially in a few cities, you know, like, for example, if we're flying into Hong Kong, big cargo destinations, you know, where you'll bring a lot of things. And it actually was really important during the pandemic uh, to have all those planes available because not many people were traveling, but a lot of things were getting shipped. Right. So, you know, all that capacity was able to be put to use through the pandemic uh, to try and deliver vaccines, deliver cargo, deliver Pelotons, a lot of things. <laughs> In my quest for knowledge about this, I've come to learn, I didn't realize that like weight displacement on a plane is so critical. Yes. And that um, planes have crashed because someone miswrote down the weight distribution or something and they became too heavy in the back or the front. I just never, things you don't think about. I just don't, you know, yeah. you get on a plane, you just sit down, you don't think about it. Yeah, it's, it's very true, you know, um, <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's, it's huge, hugely important. I mean, for any size aircraft, really, uh, wherever that center of gravity is, Mm -hmm. uh, that that's going to really affect the safety of the flight. And so, uh, yeah, the, the people we have, uh, United has a whole department called load planning that does that stuff Mm -hmm. and calculates that. And I mean, it's, you know, I don't know if you've ever been on a flight before where, uh, they've had to delay takeoff. We were flying into St. Lucia, and you fly to Puerto Rico, and then you take a smaller plane into St. Lucia. Uh-huh. And right at the end, they hoisted aboard two above-average individuals. And the flight attendant came out and said, okay, now three of you have to move to the front of the plane, or we can't take off. Yep. And I was just like, oh, okay, I'll never, I never, I did, and I'll never forget that. It was just like, okay, let's go. They've come out and asked me that on an airliner. Can you move <laughs> well, to the other side? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, it really, it really does matter. And, you know, where mistakes have been made in the past, it, you can, you can even feel it flying the plane, uh, a little bit of a difference in the, in the feel of it. Um, but also, uh, it's, it, it really does, uh, affect the safety of the flight. And it's, you know, we've had before to ask, you know, can we have 30 people move from the back of the plane to the front or vice versa? Wow. And, um, and it's really critical too when you're if you're flying by yourself in a small airplane, you know, where you put those bags matters, you know. And the further away from the center of gravity, the more of an effect it has on moving the center of gravity. If you kind of think like holding a wrench on the end versus right. on the inside, you know, um, the uh, that weight acts uh, a lot more. Uh, 
the further it is. So, you know, that, that matters too. So yeah, it's a, it's an important job. And I, I used to have to do that stuff myself, but fortunately, <laughs> you know, that, that things, those things are taken care of by experts now. John Travolta is a big time pilot. He was on the radio not that long ago and he was talking about flying. And one of the comments was, he said, it's actually easier to fly these big jumbo jets than it is a small plane because everything is just so computerized that it's, is that really the case? Is it that, I'm sure it's more complicated. Yeah. But he said the physical aspects are much easier. I would say, I would say it is to a degree. So I I think, yes, the physical action of flying, doing day-to-day stuff when, you know, nothing's going wrong and everything is, is going well, you know, and you're, and you're able to just kind of monitor things is it is easier, but then on the other hand, you got to remember with a big plane, everything's moving so much faster. Right. And um, one of the biggest things of, of most important jobs of a pilot is being situationally aware, meaning you know understanding where you are, where you're going to be in a couple seconds. And the faster you go, the less time you have to make those decisions. So, uh, you know, if you're going in a small plane flying slowly, you make a mistake. You have some time to recover that versus. You're going, you know, 500 miles an hour, 600 miles an hour, or, you know, on approach, you know, 250 miles an hour close to an airport. You know, you don't have a lot of time before two airplanes are right on top of each other. You're flying through bad weather. So I would say from a physical standpoint of flying, yes, from a planning and decision-making standpoint, it gets much harder. I think a lot of experienced pilots take that for granted because they've been doing it for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, they get used to that and get used to that speed. But whenever you see a brand-new pilot transitioning to, you know, more advanced aircraft, there's a steep learning curve there gotcha. while they're, you know, trying to get used to the timing of everything and planning I mean, ahead. Just the instrument, pad, I just I can't imagine, like, you know, trying to focus on all of that all the time. It's, it's, it seems overwhelming. Yeah, it, it is. You know, I, I think it's, it's like anything. You know, one of the hardest things you learn earlier is your, your scan of the instruments, being able to quickly look at all the instruments and get a good idea of where the airplane is. And uh, as you continue on, you know, it becomes second nature to you. But like, you know, a lot of things you learn with coordination, you know, I think it could be you could maybe draw that parallel with martial arts as well. You know, the things at the beginning that are very hard to do right. once trained – you know, you learn to do it correctly and uh, in the right order, you know, and just mechanically it becomes second nature to you. That's cool. Yeah. yeah it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, what is your, like, typical routine? First of all, before I even do that, there's three There's three or two people flying the plane usually on an airliner. Uh, so it's typically between two and four people. Oh, two and four. Okay. Yeah. So um, the general rule, this isn't hard and fast, but the general rule is if the flight's less than eight hours, it'll be a two-person crew. Uh, if the flight is between eight to 12 hours, it'll be a three-person crew, and then more than 12 hours will be four. Okay. Yeah. And so the captain, the co-pilot, mm-hmm. navigator still? Do they have- uh, no. Yeah, it's no. just captain and basically three co-pilots. Okay. And so the way we differentiate it is one is the flying position co-pilot, and then there's two, we call them international relief pilots. And so uh, the captain has command of mm-hmm. the ship. The other flying pilot occupies the seat next to the captain for takeoff and landing. And then the relief pilots will occupy the seats when the flying pilots are on rest. Uh, and a, at, at United, all, uh, all pilots are qualified as captains. 
So when you get your initial training, you actually are have all the certifications to be okay. a captain, and you're checked out as a captain. You have what's called a type rating in the aircraft that you're flying, which allows you to be captain of that airplane. But you're not. that's not your position on the flight unless you are the actual captain. But okay. they do that because when the captain's in the back on break, everybody who's up in that seat needs to be capable of making those command decisions, you know, critical right. times should an emergency happen, so... Okay. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. I was always I know that there's like, do the two guys that are filling who are not actually like responsible at that point. Are they doing other jobs or are they just kind of along for the ride until you need relief? Uh, so they're doing most of the actual. A lot of the actual work gets done in the planning phase. Uh, believe it or not, for flying. So you know, before you even go, you want to take a close look at yeah, all the paperwork. Do you have enough fuel? What's the weather like along the way? If there's an emergency, where are you going to go? What are going to be your best options? So that's kind of my next question. You just arrived at the airport. What's your typical routine? Okay. The, what, what, you're going to be the captain of the plane. You are the, the guy in control. Okay. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tie those together. So um, for, for, for your last question, the relief pilots will assist in the pre-flight portion. So the flying guys will occupy the two, uh, the two front seats. They'll get all the switches in the right places. They'll load uh, the programming into the computer. Uh, for what your route's going to be. Um, they'll do those checks. The other guys will usually uh, check the other things on the plane, things behind those two seats, things in the cabin, do the walk around, make sure the airplane's good. So um, for a typical routine arriving at the airport, uh, I will usually get to the airport about two hours before the flight. You've got to get through security. Then we go to a... You uh, guys have to get through security too? We do too, yeah. Amazingly, okay. yep, we still have to clear security. We can't bring, you know, some airports can't have too big a bottle of water, okay. even though you're about to occupy the flying seat. That's, uh, you know, the, the way the procedure is now and the way the rules play out. So um, and then uh, we all go to the pre-flight planning area and we meet there and we uh, will all get copies of the flight paperwork. So we'll be able to see what the route is. We'll take a look at what the weather is uh, and then we'll start just thinking about the flight and thinking about. Um, what's going to happen. And with experience, you get better at knowing what to look for. But a few things that are, you know, that are important here are what's the status of the airplane? Is there, you know, a maintenance issue with the airplane that needs to get fixed before you go? Is there a maintenance issue with the airplane where it's safe and legal to fly, but maybe that issue could affect you on your flight? Um, For example, you know, like a 777, you know, we'll have like four backup electrical systems. So, not such a big deal if, you know, if one of them is what's called deferred, meaning one of them is, is uh, going to be fixed at a later date. It's not working right now. But depending on your routing and what your options are, it, it may affect you, you know, because you never want to operate a plane uh, in a situation where a single failure would be, you know, would cause an emergency. So, um, so in that, in that case, uh, you're going to, you're going to check that stuff out. You're going to check all the weather, the routing, those kind of things, look at turbulence. And then you talk to the dispatcher who planned the flight mm-hmm. uh, before the flight. And with the talk with the dispatcher, you'll ask them, you know, you, you might even talk to them about, hey, maybe there's a better route we could take here. It looks like this is going to take us through turbulence. Why are we playing this way? There's so many considerations. Are there active volcanoes, you know, on the way? A lot of is things. a dispatcher different than an air traffic controller? It is, yes, okay. yeah. So dispatcher would be the flight planning department. 
air traffic control is going to be actually like uh, government employees who control where the they direct where the where the airplanes go. The dispatcher will work closely with air traffic control in that they plan the flight and they'll file your flight plan. So air traffic control has a copy, but um, yeah, but the captain and the dispatcher are responsible for the planning of the flight and the route it takes. And you may have, you know, been flying before and had a delay where they say, well, we've got a reroute. We've got an ATC reroute or dispatchers giving us a reroute. Like, let's say there's a thunderstorm at, at the take, you're taking off a Newark airport and there's a thunderstorm and nobody can depart to the Northwest because of that. So maybe you call the dispatcher, you say, Hey, can you find us a route that departs to the Northeast? And then we'll uh, loop around that weather, okay. and maybe then your flight could operate instead of being delayed another hour or two. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what their job is there, and right. what we try and help mitigate in the planning stage. So now you're uh, all ready to go. You've been cleared. Everything's been checked. You're ready. They're going to start pulling you out to the runway. What's going on? What's going on at this point? You're just waiting in line. Everything's already done. You're just kind of chilling, or is it like there's still a lot to go? Yeah, you know, what's often overlooked uh, w- with flying, I think especially from a passenger perspective, is how critical the taxi portion is where you're on the ground coming out. Because what you're basically, you know, if you think about an airport, all these airplanes in the wide open sky that are separated, you know, by many miles all get funneled into this small space, right? right? So you've got a lot of planes and, you know, uh, two planes hitting each other moving quickly over the ground could be as hazardous as a crash in the air. So... Uh, when we're on the taxi out, it's really important that everybody stay vigilant, look for other airplanes, see if, you know, somebody made a mistake. Did a plane make a wrong turnoff? Did an air traffic control give a direction that might put you close proximity to another plane? So uh, during that time, you know, we're all trying to keep our eyes open to assist and look out uh, for other aircraft and make sure we're navigating correctly to the runway. Um the good engine and so it takes on a lot more drag so it can continue to take off with just one engine though it can but it depends on your airspeed so that's why it's such a critical phase of flight because up to a certain airspeed the best thing to do is do what's called an aborted takeoff so basically you pull the power back you break you know you you break uh, very forcefully and you come to a stop on the runway but once you get up to a certain speed at the weight you're at, you actually can no longer stop on the runway. So right, so I was just going to say, yeah. what if there, what if you can't? Like, yeah, so now you still have to continue to try to maybe go around or whatever. But. Exactly. Yeah, you got to get it airborne. So right. the safest thing is get it airborne and then okay. run your checklist, come back around and land on on one engine. So um, that's why it's a very critical phase, and uh, we have what's called uh, a decision speed, 
And at that decision speed, it's basically the speed at which uh, once you hit that speed, you're no longer going to stop on the runway. You're going to continue. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a very critical phase of flight because doing the wrong thing in that situation, reacting just on, on instinct and not thinking about and realizing, you know, not being situationally aware of what's going on. If you try to stop and you're too fast, you go off the end of the runway. Right. Uh, and then you try and take off and you're too slow, the airplane doesn't have enough airspeed and it won't fly. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it can, and then maybe it won't be able to develop enough speed to take off on the runway if you, you know, if you tried taking off too slow. So, On a regular takeoff, just both engines working fine, what's the normal speed of takeoff? Like, That's going to vary on weight too, but, uh, I mean, just ballpark. for, yeah, general ballpark, about 160 miles oh, an hour okay. on a 777, yeah. That, again, that's surprisingly slow to me for yeah. something that big. You yep. would think it would need far more power to get off, yeah. speed to get up. You know? Yeah, that's true. But then you think about 160 miles an hour going by you on the expressway. And right, oh, pretty yeah. Quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and that, that's, you know, what allows you to do that is the flaps on the airplane. So that's why we have those flaps. They allow you to take off at a slower airspeed. You get in the air, and then without that ground friction, you can accelerate pretty quickly, start getting the flaps up, get the airplane to where it's more efficient. But And typical cruising speeds are yeah, um, five-something? Yeah, once, once you get up to altitude and you're, and you're in level flight, you're going to be doing about like 550-ish okay. miles an hour, you know, give or take a few. And uh, in the climb out, You'll be, uh, you'll be 250 miles an hour up to about 10,000 feet, and then above 10,000 feet, you're allowed to go faster, so you'll speed up to about 300, 310, and you'll do that all the way till you get up to altitude and then speed up up there. Wow. That's, uh... Now, what's the climb out? You mentioned that. Yeah, what's but the climb, climb out? out? is when you're getting to the, from takeoff to your level point. Is that climbing yes. out of that? Yeah, yeah. So the climb is, yeah, once you, once you get off the ground, but it's basically the portion from once you once you lift off to once you get up to your cruising altitude, which is going to be around thirty thousand feet. That's in stages, right? You guys got to kind of and then again and again. It's not like it, it is. seems like that at least. It it, it is. It, it's more so that way because of busy airspace. You know, oh, okay. you take off in the New York area. You got planes coming into LaGuardia, Kennedy, Philadelphia, DC. Okay. You know, and they've got them all separated at different altitude chunks. And so what they, a lot of times they'll do when you're taking off is they'll hold you down maybe to get below the traffic going into Kennedy. And then you'll get wow. to climb another 5,000 feet. You know, maybe now you're staying below the traffic, you know, that's going into LaGuardia or Boston or right. somewhere along the way. So it, it, it comes in bits and pieces. But, you know, if you take off in, uh, you know, El Paso, Texas, you'll probably get to go straight up to altitude without having to stop along the way. So you'll just kind of, uh, you'll climb out. There's a speed limit in the U.S. that's just imposed by the FAA of 250 miles an hour up to 10,000 feet. I think this is more for the benefit of uh, people on the ground, and the houses okay. you fly over, and then they let you speed up once you get up higher. Because it seems like when I was a kid, you could see a lot more planes in the sky. Like this, Every time you look up, there was a plane. But nowadays, like hey, you don't hear them. And I rarely see them as much. Like they're flying that much higher now. That 
Uh, or is definitely it just- a little higher, but not that much. Um, but there's many more planes flying right now than there that's were what. Then. That's what yeah, statistics I mean, show. It just seemed like you don't see them as much. Yeah, as I, it just seemed like when I was a kid. Like, well, maybe you guys in the city too. I live closer to an airport, but yeah. Still. Yeah, and then, yeah, I think a lot of it's how close you are to an airport. Maybe certain places you live, you're on the arrival to certain airports, mm-hmm. so you see a lot of planes. Other places you might live, you might not be on any of those arrivals, so you won't see too many. But then I think another thing is just how often do you hear them, like you said. I mean, the technology, the engine technology has advanced so many times over, and, you know, airplanes are much quieter now than, than they were before. Right. And so even, you know, airplanes that produce a lot more thrust will – make much less noise that's crazy yeah Yeah. on takeoff um you guys are still doing it you guys are flying the plane it's not just can you auto take off that technology exists but we don't really uh at united we don't have that and at other at other companies they don't have that so yeah i it's it's not it's not really common okay so yeah it's uh it it does i have seen that it exists. Auto landing is a thing, though. That's something you can do. But take off, no. So if uh, the entire cabin crew is incapacitated and someone says, who's going to land the plane? They could literally, you could computerize that plane down to the ground again? You could, but, I mean, it's could learning somebody, how to do that. Could I, I'm in the, now, everybody's, for whatever reason, it's just me. Yeah. Could I be talked down with, like, could somebody on the ground literally say, push these buttons, do this, hit this, and this plane can bring itself in? Yes, but it's it would be very complicated just because there's a lot of things you need to understand to do it right. Like you put the flaps out and you're too fast, could damage okay, the wing. Right. There's a, there's you know you're too slow, the plane would stall. So I mean, if somebody did a really good job of talking you through, it, I could I could see it as being maybe possible, but it it would be very I mean Not probable <laughs> doing an auto land is a different skill set than physically landing. But it's probably every bit as hard just okay. because all the steps rec- that are required have to be done correctly. And right. and then if you talk about actually being proficient to the point where if something went wrong, you'd be able to correct it. You know, that's a whole nother level, you know, because you need to understand what to do and how to kick off the autopilot and when you can land, when you can't. So right. those kind of things. Is weather your most serious threat or is there, is there what, what is the most serious threat or challenge to to an airliner is it weather i i would say maybe it's it's probably the most frequent threat or challenge you know um i i I definitely wouldn't say and statistically i think this holds up uh, that mechanical is uh but it's you know they're all different in different ways i mean there's security is a huge threat all the things that we have to at an airport be cognizant of as far as security goes you know unauthorized breach of the cockpit, you know, terrorist type attacks, um, other considerations like that, you know, and then, um, but I would say on a day-to-day basis, weather is definitely the biggest challenge. It's always changing. It comes in many different forms. And, um, and if it's not, if, if you don't properly plan for it, it could become a very serious threat. What's the worst you've experienced weather-wise? You know, I, at, uh, at the airlines, I haven't experienced too much because our systems are so good for detecting it and going around it. And we really try and err as much as possible on the side of caution, which, you know, for passengers can be frustrating. It can mean delays. It could be longer flights. But, you know, if, if you look at the alternative, it's it's much better. 
But um, I remember when I was starting flying, I had a job flying um, cargo uh, in one of my early jobs, flying a plane called a Shorts 360, which was a little two-engine propeller airplane. And uh, and I remember that one, one evening, uh, a tropical storm had just passed through. And uh, we had taken off, you know, to deliver the boxes. And uh, we had flew through basically, you know, the backside where we, it wasn't the main part of the storm, but it was a lot of rainy, turbulent weather. And I remember it was a two and a half hour flight and we were just getting bounced around like crazy. Like we wouldn't have flown passengers in there, uh-huh. you know. We knew it was safe for the plane, but it wasn't comfortable. And so that was probably the worst conditions I felt. Um, other close to that is maybe, you know, I, I've flown into Japan and in Japan, a lot of times you get some very strong winds and mountains, and the combination of winds and mountains causes a turbulence called mountain wave turbulence. Okay. And uh, that is kind of like very abrupt bumps of turbulence. And uh, we were going into an airport doing a military charter, so bringing some uh, some American military people for tr- uh, somewhere where they were going to train. Mm-hmm. And it was just a strong wind day, about 45 miles an hour, coming right over the mountains trying to land and we just were getting rocked down low, you know, it's just, you know, the effect of that, of the wind off of the mountains just was, was knocking everybody around a good bit. But that was, you know, for about 15 minutes before we landed versus two and a half hours. Okay. <laughs> so okay. yeah. It, um, what, uh, how does wind shear work? Wind shear work. What so, happens when there's wind shear? That's like big in Chicago or something. Mm-hmm. Weren't they the yeah. Yeah. Pretty big, pretty big everywhere. But what, what wind shear really is is that the wind is not steady, that it's coming and going in bursts. And so uh, we, when you think about wind shear, think about like a wind's maybe 20 miles an hour, so a good stiff wind mm-hmm. gusting to 40 miles an hour, you know, a really strong, the kind of wind that blows your hat off, you know. And so if you think about what that's doing to the airplane, right, you have that strong 20-mile-an-hour wind, Okay, and, and the airplane kind of adjusts with that wind and is flying normal with that wind. Then all of a sudden you get a gust that comes up, and all of a sudden all this extra wind is coming over the wings. It's coming over, you know, all the control surfaces. So the airplane actually becomes very easy to control. And then once that wind dies off, uh, you lose all that performance. And so it can cause you to dip. That's you know, what, right, so, the, the plane will drop real fast. Yeah, you'll feel that drop, a drop in performance. And close to the ground, that could be dangerous. I mean, there's wind shear conditions where you're not going to take off or land. So, okay. yeah. The freakiest feeling I've ever had on a plane was we were leaving, uh, I think, California or Arizona. It was Arizona. And we're in the air, and, like, everybody kind of, like, lurched forward a little bit. Like, the plane all of a sudden slowed down or something. Yeah. But we never got, like, pulled back into our seats. And I was left with this. <laughs> Why aren't we going again? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It it can it can feel really abrupt. Um, it's it's really very common for them to call wind shear, but it definitely comes in different uh, in different flavors. So you know, there a very a very strong wind shear could be a safety of flight issue where you right. might want to go to a different airport or delay takeoff or something sure. like that. What other kind of weather issues besides like I know there's ice, there's you know, yep, heavy ice rains. Like, is rain is rain a big deal if it's just a typical rainy day, even if it's no. coming down really hard? No, no, it really it really isn't. It only only if it's you know associated with a thunderstorm, but that's more mm-hmm. due to the thunderstorm and the 
you know, the up and down drafts from the thunderstorm. Uh, icing, like you said, that's that that matters. But I, un- hate, I hate to do icing. I hate when, <laughs> when I'm sitting there. I come see how I'm like, oh no, yeah. man, that ice is going to come back, and oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the de-icing fluid is actually really good. It stops it from building up, and uh, it melts all the, all the ice off. And the airplanes actually have good heating systems to melt the ice when you're in the air and when you get going. Uh, so. Uh, but, you know, icing is a concern. It's especially a concern for smaller planes. But for bigger planes, if you get a lot of ice buildup, uh, it, you know, it changes the shape of the wing, right. adds weight to the airplane. So, you know, you let enough of it build up, you're flying a totally different thing than what you planned, sure. you know. So, yeah. Um, another big one you might have heard of before is called microbursts. Yes. Those are yeah. kind of like involved with, uh, you know, uh, thunderstorm type weather or tornado type weather. And what that'll be is a very, very strong downdraft. So it's kind of like what wind shear is, except wind shear would be horizontal and a microburst is vertical. Gotcha. And um, so, you know, microburst, you get a big downdraft, it pushes you down, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, what do you want to do? You want to pull up. And then when that microburst goes away, you lose all that performance and, you know, maybe you, it could make you get too slow uh, it, it just depends how strong it is. So, and those are more common out in like, you know, West Texas, Oklahoma, that area, they, they see more of that report than we do in the Northeast. But I mean, those are, if they're strong enough microbursts or microbursts being reported, planes won't take off for that. Right. And so yeah, those, those are our concern. We're always on the lookout for that. Um, on a typical day, just perfect weather. What's the slowest you can go that a plane will not begin to fall out of the sky? What is it like? Like, so uh, that's going to depend on your altitude and uh, and then your airplane's configuration. I mean, do you have flaps out or flaps not out? Okay. So let's say up at altitude, right? If you're up at altitude and the flaps are up, you know, you probably can't get much lower than about 240. Oh, okay. So of indicated airspeed. Um, but, you know, down by the ground with the flaps all the way out, you probably are not going to get any lower than if you're if you're a triple seven and you're heavy, mm-hmm. you know, one thirty, one thirty five. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever had any emergencies flying like beep 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 bing bing you know, like, uh-huh. <laughs> like you see on the um, shows? Emergencies, no. Uh, I mean, the, you have like the odd like sometimes medical emergency mm-hmm. with somebody in the back where you have to you need to go land because yeah, we'll get to those stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, f- as far as uh. We, all the failures that I've had have been uh, have been failures that we can address with checklists. Go safely land the airplane, get it dealt with. You know, so nothing that put the airplane in a critical state. I did, you know, as a private pilot or as a pilot building time before I started working as a pilot. I had an engine failure in a one-engine airplane where I landed on a road. So that wow. was my big emergency for my life. Yeah, tell me about that. So um, I had. Just graduated college, so I was 21 years old. Um, at the time, you know, my dad had been, he'd, he'd gotten more interested in flying, and he actually had bought a small airplane called a Bonanza, was the name. It's a decently fast single-engine airplane, and by decently fast, I mean, you know, flying about 160 miles an hour or so. Uh, and um, so uh, when school finished, um, at the time, you know, I had, I had now finished all my training. I had I was a flight instructor, so I had more experience than my dad. Um, and he, he'd come to pick me up, and we were going to fly together with my mom and little brother in the back. And we flew all the way from Florida back up to Chicago where we lived. And uh, 
we did the whole long flight that day until we were 45 miles away from our destination in Chicago, where we were going to land. And flew through that day. We waited out some weather for a little bit in Alabama and then, you know, continued on. And we're going to be landing at nighttime up in Chicago. So we were flying along and uh, I was I was flying at the time. He was doing the radios. And next thing we know, we I look and look at the oil uh, pressure on the plane and it's pegged at zero. It all the way went from, you know, a normal pressure all the way to zero. So. At that time in my mind, it could be one or two things. Hopefully it's just the gauge, which means the plane's going to keep flying fine and no issues, or we actually don't have any oil pressure, in which case <coughs> engine's not going to be lubricated. It's not going to be able to run much longer. So as it turned out, it was uh, within about, after I saw that, about 45 seconds or so, the uh, engine just starts to go really, really rough. It starts smoking and sparks are flying. And so I shut the engine off because, you know, at this point it's a fire hazard. It's, it's doing more harm than good. So now we're in, you know, a small plane at night over Chicago, and it's basically a glider. And so uh, we're out of range from any uh, airport that we could glide to. So we have to figure out where we're going to land. So we talked about this before, and what we kind of decided was that we're, you know, at nighttime – Unless we can see clearly that there's a field that's completely open and well lit, which it's hard to see at night, you know, we're going to land on a road. So the nice thing about Illinois is it's southern Illinois is very flat and all the roads are north, south, east, west. So, you know, if you think about, you know, somewhere here like Pennsylvania, you know, Bucks County where the roads are windy, Windy, they're hilly, hilly, there's trees, potholes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, landing on a road here could really be a challenge if you couldn't see at night. But over there, long east-west roads, so at least, you know, that makes that a decent option. Over here, maybe you'd think about landing, you know, and what you could best estimate is going to be an open field. But over there, you know, the, the road was the better option. So uh, we start – this is something as a, as a pilot you practice a lot. You never really do it all the way to completion because, you know, uh, in, in training you're not just going to go land on roads. But, you know, but you, you practice the procedures for it a lot. And so – um, I went I went through those procedures and I had my dad call air traffic control and declare an emergency, basically notifying, you know, hey, we're going down. This is where we are. Send help. Uh, that kind of stuff. And so um, it uh, the basically I saw below us was a long east west road. Uh, there were some cars on it, but it was kind of rural Illinois. So I went ahead and glided it down. And uh, as we got closer to the cars that were on the road, started flashing our lights at them, kind of saying like, hey, you know, this is for real. We're coming, yeah, to let them know. And fortunately, that worked. They all pulled off to the shoulder for us, made a nice normal landing on the road, rolled out to a stop. And there I was in the town of Waseca, Illinois. (laughs) And, uh, you know, um, and with our airplane, uh, I, I came to stop on the road and just kind of pulled it off into the shoulder, which was kind of a ditch, just kind of slowly pulled it over there to allow some cars to pass. But, um, yeah, all, all of a sudden, you know, there we were about, you know, 45 miles away from our home airport. The uh, the plane was stopped there. Uh, we uh, s- Some people called the police, so the local police came over. They had no idea what to do. Uh, and there's a guy who actually had the same kind of plane as my dad, who was a lawyer in the town, who just for a hobby listened to police scanners and he came over and showed up and he had his own little grass, uh, grass airport basically in his backyard. 
And so he let us bring the plane over there and keep it there until we could get it fixed. That's kind of the nice thing about the aviation community is it's kind of like a, a small brother and sisterhood, you know, like everybody helps each other out. They're nice to each other. And so he was very kind and accommodating to us. The police did their best to help us, you know, with what they could. And we pulled the plane over there, left it there for a few months until our mechanic could go install a new engine. And, you know, fortunately, it was one of those cases where we did the right right things and we were fortunate that it happened in the right kind of place in the right situation that everyone could walk away. You saved your family's life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, some credit definitely goes to, you know, uh, practicing and preparation and things like that. And, you know, some of it definitely goes to the right place in the right time. You know, yeah. it would have been a different scenario if we were going over, you know, the Carolinas over the Smoky Mountains, you know, and, and that it happened or, you know, the Florida Everglades right. or, you know, different things like that. So Matt yeah. and I, Matt and I lost somebody to a plane crash. Oh, really? Um, a cousin, or I guess it would be a cousin-in-law for me. It was one of your cousins, uh, Kenny. I think they crashed on takeoff. They clipped uh, power lines or maybe it was coming down. Well, either way, they clipped the power lines somehow and yeah. it just boom, set the plane right to the ground. Mm-hmm. And he had just started learning to fly. I'm not sure if he was at the, the wheel or not. Yeah. But uh, they made a mistake and it put the, didn't survive it yeah yeah that's sad you know as you're training uh there's going to be a few times you know where you're where you're learning where you you scare yourself you know and it's you hope you know that you're fortunate enough that be able to learn from it and you know to that that the worst doesn't happen that's an insane story yeah for for a commercial airliner what is your training like what is the training required well, um, first, I mean, before you even step foot, you know, and have, have the job, thousands of hours, you know, lots of experience. They look College for, degree required before you even start? Historically, yes, it has always been required. Now it's, they say, preferred. So I guess it's possible it, that's... In what particular, like, what would you... Uh, well, if you, it, it doesn't have to be in aviation, but I, I studied aeronautical science, okay. which was, you that's know... That's curious, yeah. Yeah, which was, you know, basically you know, learning about being a pilot. And, but, I mean, we get people from all backgrounds, some people with late career changes, you know, starting finance or something right. and change. Uh, well, I'm so, an accountant, so can I become a pilot? Good, <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and, and I know accountants that have become pilots. I fly with, fly with them, you know, and some people I fly with, they spent 10 years, you know, doing something else. and Get your taxes and, done while you're flying the plane. Ta- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, perfect. Get some good advice. Is there an age limit where... That you have to start before, or not an age limit where you have to start before, but right now to be a commercial airline pilot, the top limit is sixty-five years old. So at sixty-five, you have to retire. But there's other jobs like uh, you know corporate and things like that where you can continue. I so. saw years ago. I saw a thing on sixty minutes where a pilot was obtaining age sixty-five and. Lack of a better word, he was a stud. He worked out all the time. He was in really great shape. Yeah. I'm kind of questioning that. What kind of you know, physical qualifications do you have? Do you have to like pass physicals every so often? Or? Yeah. In fact, I was just at one today. That's what I did this morning before I went. So every if you're older than forty, every six months you have to get a medical check. If you're younger than forty, once a year. So you you go see a doctor who's specifically a physician trained to evaluate. Uh, people that uh, to evaluate pilots and uh you they they test a bunch of things so basically it's to make sure that you meet some sort of health criteria before you can 
be in, in front and controlling an airplane with passengers in the back. Are there um, physical things that happen when you constantly keep flying at high altitudes, you're under cabin, like, are there things that have, like, you know, it's like an astronaut in space. Mm-hmm. They lose their bone mass very quickly uh-huh. uh, if they don't keep working out constantly. They have to work out, like, several hours a day just to, to maintain it. Is there cause and effect, like, for constantly being in the air? Is there anything that, um, like you said, a doctor who's specifically for airlines, is that because maybe your blood pressure might read differently or this might be different because you're a pilot, or is that? Uh, it's, it's more... They're there because of just to enforce the criteria that's mm-hmm. decided upon because okay. they know they're specialists in that. Now, so with, with that, it's not really like an astronaut, but there are things that affect you. Uh, you know, there's more radiation up there. The air is usually drier, quite a bit drier. Uh, usually when you're flying, you're at about a 6,000-foot altitude when you're in the cabin, meaning the airplane pressurizes. Even though you should be at 30,000 feet, it pressurizes to 6,000 feet. But what, where this stuff is really significant is when things go wrong and understanding what you have. So, you know, if one, one of the big considerations is called a rapid decompression, where, you know, if you're up at, you know, 30, 35, 40,000 feet uh, and you have a rapid decompression, you have to get an oxygen mask on quickly because you don't have a long what's called time of useful consciousness. There's not a lot of time where you're going to be able to stay awake. So physiology is something very important to understand. Uh, right up there, but it's, uh, you know, on a normal day, you know, we're feeling what you're feeling in the back and we're exposed to some other things, but it's, um, it, it's, it's nothing, you know, where in our day-to-day routine, you know, it's not that I should do anything really different than you other than it's good normal practices for people of staying right. healthy will give you more longevity and make sure. you feel better. But is it true that, um, if the oxygen mass drop, the oxygen only lasts about 12 minutes? Uh, usually it's more than that, but it's there's different kinds of oxygen masks and, and a lot of them, and it's, um, but it's, I, I, the, the usual amount that you plan on is going to be 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. It tends to be more, but that's what you plan on. And so um, it's, it's, that's why as, as pilots we're trained, you know, one, once you get to this situation, like if the cabin altitude gets above 10,000 feet, we descend down to where the cabin air is going to be breathable in, you know, in pretty quick succession because you only have so much time up there without uh, oxygen. Your, your tanks are only good for about that amount of time. Gotcha. I didn't so. even know that. You know, it's just one of those things you don't think about. And I was watching one of those shows again and why planes crash and all that stuff. Yeah. And that was one of the things. Um, a plane was just flying all by itself, and they had to put a fighter jet up next to it. When they got there, they looked in, and they, everybody was out, passed out. Yeah. And as they backtracked all the stuff, they realized that they ran out, They simply ran out of oxygen. They could not. The plane would not let itself go down or something. Whatever the problem was, yeah. it would not change altitudes. They couldn't get in there. Was that the Payne Stewart one from a few years no, back? No, this was an the airliner. Golfer. This oh, was, like, it was. But not a big one, but like a smaller. Yeah. Usually all the shows, what I, what I found is obviously um, it has gotten so much safer yeah. because when you watch all these wide planes crash shows, the plane crashes are all from years ago, Yeah, like many years ago. You don't hear almost anything anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what, what that is, so there's two kind of two decompressions we think about if the airplane's going to lose uh, cabin altitude. One is the one that, you know, kind of like the Hollywood one called the rapid decompression where all of a sudden, you know, something breaks, some valve mis- malfunctions, something happens, and next thing you know, there's a quick outflow of air in a very short time. And the, But everybody notices that. It's loud. You hear it. You notice it. You know, 
And then there's the other one, which doesn't seem as bad, but maybe is more insidious called the slow decompression, where it's just, if you think about a balloon, you got the first one is the balloon pops. The second one is you just very slowly let the air kind of eke out of the balloon. And that one is, um, the danger in that one is that you might not notice it until you get to a point where the air is no longer breathable and you just kind of pass out, you know, fall asleep. But fortunately, the airplanes monitor for those with multiple systems. So to not notice it in a modern airliner is near impossible because, you know, there's, there's multiple systems monitoring it and then you get a warning. And so, you know, for it to become an issue, you'd have to ignore that warning. Now, other airplanes or, you know, maybe in corporate, they're, they're under different rules. A lot of these things that we figured out now are because of accidents that have happened in the past where people realize, hey, we need, you know, a system to tell us about right. this or this could happen. So that's a very good example. When you're training, how much time do you spend uh, for an airline? You, you, you want to get an airline job. How much time do you train in a flight simulator compared to actually being on a plane and physical training? So, because well, I got to imagine a real plane's expensive, the fuel. So, like, do you mm-hmm. actually train? Like, I'm sure you you actually train in a real plane a lot. Yeah. But I'm curious, how much is it that's simulated? And how much is it that's actual? So, uh, when bef- let's let's first say before you get your job with mm-hmm. the airline. So it's mostly going to be in real airplanes because, you know, you're going to flight instruct, you're going to fly smaller planes, build your time, maybe fly cargo or fly to regional airlines. So you can't become an airline pilot cold out of like, hey, I'm going to be an airline pilot and go to school for that. Like, uh, it's, it's changing now, but in, so you really, you can't, you need experience. But right now, the way they've changed is airlines are starting to hire people uh, with, with no time and put them through the training because there's a pilot shortage now Mm -hmm. they need pilots. So airlines are starting to pay for people's training all the way up through, uh, to just to have, you know, to have enough pilots to meet the demand that's coming. But, um, uh, yeah, but once you get hired with the airline, so you, you, you start with your airline job, then most of your training, especially emergency training, which you couldn't really do properly in a real airplane without, some sort of risk, right? You know, uh, that that's done in a simulator, and the simulators are excellent. I was just gonna say, how yeah. fun is that, right? Yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, it's like the most realistic video game you could imagine. You know, it's the cockpit set up exactly right. It acts like the real plane. You know, it's for someone that's spent a lot of time flying. It's not a hundred percent, but as a training tool, it's very good. You do that until you're, and then you do, you know, what's your checkout? Meaning, someone evaluates you and says, okay, now you're proficient. Then you go into the real airplane with uh, a, what's called the check airman, which is an instructor pilot for your first few hours to, you know, your first usually uh, 30 or 40 hours to make sure that you're competent in the real airplane as well as in the simulator. Right. And once once that's all done, then you're then you're good to go and you're you're signed off. Okay. So, yeah. So at the airlines, most of your training simulator. And then when you go back to train, when you're like, like I am now, you know, a current fully qualified pilot, I still go back every nine months to retrain emergencies to make sure all that stuff is fresh in your head to make sure you're, you know, you're well-practiced. I'm sure they constantly create new ones too. For they you do. To yes. You. Yes. Or, or they, you know, a lot of times they'll base it on things that have happened in real life. They'd say, you know, well, a few months ago, this situation happened with this airliner in Asia, and we see that as being something worth training. So we're going to train that. And, you know, it's it's not even an accident. A lot of times it's a, a situation where uh, 
something came up and they just want to make sure everybody's prepared for that. You know, a lot of times it involves going through very long and complicated checklists and things like oh, that. So it's not always like just the sitting here and it's, you know, Hey, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it's not always like a, a fly by the seat of your pants, you know, like, uh, you know, everything's on fire or emergency. Sometimes it's, you've got a fuel leak checklist, you know, and you've got to work through 20 pages of that, you know, and figure out how to isolate the fuel leak, cut it off. And then once the airplane's in a safe situation, go land it safely somewhere, you know? So some of them are, you know, more flying skills related. Some of them are are more, uh, I guess, preparation and kind of mental uh, challenges. All right. That's pretty wild. Yeah. I know we're bouncing around all over the place. Oh, no worries. Um, John F. Kennedy Jr. His plane, they determined that was, uh, he, he couldn't tell where he was. Spatial disorientation? Yep. I watched a show once that blew my mind because I just never – I understand the concept of speed. You can't tell what's up and down because you can't see anything. But I, what I don't understand is how your body lies to you. So this one show that I watched, the plane started turning down towards the ground on a, on a curve, like an angle, basically down to the right. And yet you would think as it's building up speed, you'd feel the G-force and all the pressure and the leaning as you – and yet your body, because you can't, will adjust itself so you don't feel that and you mm-hmm. think you're sitting normal. Yep. And like that just, like I just can't even imagine, like because the force is still there. Yeah. But how your body can adapt and ignore that. Yes, yeah. Yeah, His this is actually a, a, one of the more common causes of airplane accidents. And it's this happens pretty much entirely with less experienced pilots, pilots that are only have their private pilot's license. So... They're good to fly in good daytime, clear weather when they get into clouds or, you know, poor visibility at nighttime. And so it's what you said, the spatial disorientation. So, yeah, I mean, what happens basically is your ear tricks you. You know, your inner ear, it gets used to being off balance. And then you start to think, well, this off balance position I'm in is actually normal. This is where I should be. And so you're flying along, you don't feel anything. And what, what a lot of times will happen is all of a sudden, you know, they'll check the instruments and the instruments will be way different than what they feel that they're at. Right. Or maybe they're looking at some stars on the horizon, but they think those are lights of buildings on the horizon. So now all of a sudden they're at a 45 degree angle instead of straight up and down. And what makes this worse is that, you know, then they see they're in this position that they don't want to be in and they overreact. And so they pull too hard, they push too hard, and right. you know, then the airplane stalls, gets too slow, gets too fast. Something like that happened. And and that's what happened to uh to John F. Kennedy Jr. And mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's it's something that's really important to train against, but it's definitely something to be aware of. Um and I think that with any other emergency, you know, for pilots, you know, any aspiring pilots out there, the important thing to remember is you always have more time than you think, you know, take a second, assess the situation and react calmly. And that'll do better than, you know, the quick, you know, reaction, you kind of freak out instinct that you have, you know, it's kind of like the saying they always have is wind the clock a little, give yourself some time. Yeah. But I mean, that's a very real thing. I've experienced it myself too, you know, just flying, you know, especially flying single engine airplanes at night you start to feel, all of a sudden, you know, you, you look out, I've, I've been straight and level, but look out on the horizon, it can, the opposite can happen, right? You're straight, you're where you should be, but you look out on the horizon, all of a sudden you feel like you're in a 30-degree angle because you just don't have a visual reference, right. you know, to tell you where you are. So I deal with vertigo, yeah. so I know that, that like everything, like sometimes 
I don't feel like I'm leaning over. I feel like the room has shifted, but I'm still upright, but yet I feel like I'm falling. Like yes. it's a weird, it's a very weird like feeling. I, I, yeah, if it's anything like that, I, I get it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It can, it can really throw you off and yeah. in clouds or, you know, nighttime, there's nothing to reference. So it's, it, it can happen very insidiously. Right. Have you ever thrown, flown a helicopter? I haven't. No. The Kobe Bryant, my understanding was that there's two different kinds of helicopter pilots. There's visual flyers and there's instrument flyers. Uh-huh. And you get licensed differently. Is that the same with planes or is it you, it's all combined? It's the same, yeah. It's not so much that there's it, – there are two different licenses that you can get. And so, you know, if you're visual only, that means you're not allowed to go in conditions that would be called instrument conditions okay. where you need to only rely on your instruments. Because apparently that pilot was only – license for that and so when he hit the fog and all that kind of the bad weather yeah supposedly that's you know yeah 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 and that's the same kind of thing that happened with john f kennedy jr is that he wasn't instrument rated either so yeah i mean you go through that training and it it teaches you what to do you know basically it it teaches you how to rely on the instruments and it's it's really not just relying but it's being able to get your mind to where it's fast enough that it can instead of looking outside to get all your information you can look inside and with a quick glance, you can accurately understand where the airplane is, you know, with with right. relation to space. And not only, like, are you, you know, straight up, are you pointed the right way, are your wings level, but, you know, what's below me? Where am I, you know? where How far am I from the airport I'm flying? You've got all, all these considerations that you have to do at the same time, right. you know, while talking on the radio and all the other stuff. So, yeah, and, yep, so, yeah, there are two different licenses. Okay. So now if we could fast forward a little bit to landing. Sure. My next favorite spot. The only part I hate is in the middle. I go nuts in the middle because it's like, get me out of here kind of. <laughs> yeah. In this little tube. Claustrophobia. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's just, I start to realize I'm up in the air in this long metal tube, flying really fast, and it yeah. starts to sink in. At least when you're taking off, you're occupied. This is kind of cool. This feels neat. Yeah. And when you're landing, it's kind of the same thing. I kind of, it's like that, you know, just basically a controlled crash, you know. It's yeah. like, it's kind of just, uh it, it's pretty amazing. I, I love it when, yeah, the flaps, you hear the engines adjust, that when you first touch down, that's just my favorite kind of yeah, yeah. part of it. It's a fun part as a uh, as a pilot, too. Okay. First, the airplane, you get your best view because the airplane's tilted forward a little bit, right? So you get a little more view of the ground and the horizon and everything in front of you. Um, and secondly, you know, it's just, it's it's a challenge, you know, it's with with different conditions, wind and things like that, it's it's something interesting. It's it's the part that you you know as a pilot that you still actively fly. You okay, know, right. In the modern day, so it's you know most people and most pilots wouldn't want to be flying for a lot of the crews. They'd rather let the autopilot do that. But you know, if you think kind of like you know going on the road and doing cruise control, you know, the more interesting part is you know uh, parallel parking or right. you know something where where you're more actively engaged. Sure, I've had enough times you know in the air to like you feel um the wind where you kind of going you feel like you're blowing sideways you can feel the back of the plane feel like it's snaking a little bit you know and then there's the times you get that little first little touch and then bangs like the second one a little hard and it's just odd how they all mix up and i always we used to always sit and rate like we land and go like that was like a five man i barely felt that yeah (laughs) oh yeah yeah 30 40 years ago we were visiting a friend in maine who was a pilot and we went up in a four-person plane. We're talking about the wind shifting. And when it's a four-person plane, it's small. So when the wind blows, the plane does blow. 
And I remember wind blowing, and I'm holding on, and I'm thinking, what good is holding on going to do? <laughs> it makes you feel better, right? It makes me, but it made me feel yeah. better. And I'm like, okay, I'll leave going on. Oh, no, I'm not. Okay, I'm like, but I'm thinking, dude, if it's not holding on, it's not going to help the plane. So. But it was a great time. But yeah. <laughs> just, I think that's, you know, one thing that's good for passengers to know, too, is, you know, a lot of these things to passengers, they feel like, you know, more dangerous situations or, you know, it gets their blood pressure up a little bit more. But as pilots, it's really right. just not a big deal. You know, you get some turbulence down low. That's normal. You know, it's all these things are very normal parts of the flight, though, to, to passenger feels a little more exciting, you know. But, um, yeah, the, you know, the landing definitely probably is the part as pilots that takes the longest time to master. Do you have an actual brake, like a real like a car brake, pushing a brake? Yeah. How much of the braking of the plane is done by that brake compared to the, the thrust of the engines. Uh-huh. Isn't it like, because when you land, you see that like the metal casing or something moves on the engine. And then like, is that what's really stopping the plane? Or is it like just an equal combination of both? Or is it like the you brakes are both. just back up? Like, um, the, the, the brakes are more effective, but they both, they both definitely have a, uh, they both definitely play a part. When you're at, at higher speeds, you you get more you get a, a lot of effectiveness from what's called aerodynamical braking as well. If you ever look uh, when you're when you first touch down, if you look at the wing, you have these spoilers that come up mm-hmm. on top of the wings. So those do a lot. First, they uh, they put a lot of drag on the plane, so they help slow you down a lot. They put some extra weight on the wheels that makes the brakes more effective. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, and then reverse thrust. But we're encouraged nowadays to use less reverse thrust. First, a lot of airports are noise sensitive, so they don't want all the noise okay. all the time. And then, um, secondly, using lots and lots of reverse thrust all the time takes a, a big wear on the engine. So, you know, we we do use them, and definitely certain airports use them more than others to help, but. Uh, Mostly, it's it's the actual brakes. Okay. And on advanced uh, commercial airplanes, we have what's called auto brakes. So we figure out before we even touch down how much braking we want. Wow. We set it for that to plan on exiting the runway at a certain point, and then we the airplane will touch down and it'll automatically apply a, a nice, consistent, smooth braking, and then we come on when we want to. So maybe if you feel a jolt sometimes as a passenger. It's like the switch over? It's the switch over, okay. yeah. The pilot taking over or sometimes the pilot taking over and taking over maybe a little too strong or they knock the brake completely off because they want to ru- they want to go farther down the runway. So all of a sudden you feel this consistent smooth braking after you touch down and then all of a sudden you get flung back in your seat because right. the airplane accelerates again because they air traffic control told them, okay, you can take the last turn off on the runway since that's closer to where you're parking and you know, right. there's not an airplane right on your tail landing. So, you know, there's things, a lot of things like that that come into play. But, you know, I do my best, you know, as a, as a pilot, I try and smoothly transition it over. And it's kind of like a, one of those things, you know, that you, you get used to over time finessing it, you know, it's smoothly switching. You want it to be like the passengers don't feel a thing, you know. How often are you in the same plane or are you constantly switching planes too? Like on a regular day, like you're going to go fly to point A and then back again. Yeah. Are you flying the same plane the whole time, or are you switching planes? Switching planes almost every time. Okay. Because, I mean, like, like switching in- cars all the time, like, it, it takes a – there's a learning curve to every car, no matter what. They all mm-hmm. do the same thing, but they have the brakes, you know, all that. So the same must be true with the, the yeah. planes as well. Yeah, they, they can handle differently. I mean, there's, you know, of, of the 777s, you know, there'll be, you know – 
probably 80 different ones that, you know, that I could fly, you know, and they'll change based on the route. Some of them are longer with more seats than others. So yeah, but it'll change. Now, if you're flying domestically, you might keep the same plane for a few legs. You Mm -hmm. know, you might do, you know, New York, Chicago, Chicago to LA, you know, LA to Denver, and then, you know, you switch or something like that. But, um, yeah, for uh, for international, you pretty much every leg you you come on. Every once in a while, it's weird that you know the air, airplane. Like I go over to let's say Rome, right? Go lay over there, and then the same plane in the time I'm laying over went back and forth twice. You know, oh, and then, okay. and then <laughs> you bring that same plane back. But right? Yeah, it's it's more often than not that you change. Okay. Yeah. All right. What's your uh, favorite airport? Uh, as far as layover destination or, uh, to or just to, to fly into for the, to the ability to take off or fly from, or just the ease of the airport, the safety of it, all that. Like, what's the one that you go, Oh, cool. I like that place. Oh, well, well for ease, I mean, I feel like, well, in the States, the one that I use a lot that for, as a pilot's fairly easy for busy airports to get in and out of is, is and the flying portion is like Dulles, you know, Denver, cause they're big airports, lots of runways, um, I go to a fair bit to Frankfurt, Germany. They're busy, but they are efficient and well okay. run, you know. So, as far as ease goes, yeah, I, I would say I would say some of those. Now, cool ones to fly into, like interesting as a pilot. I, I was Guam based for a while, and uh, we flew into some of the Micronesian airports, uh, which is you know the islands between Hawaii and the island of Guam. Mm-hmm. So, Chuuk, Panape, Kosarai. Uh, Kwajalein, Majuro, and those were fun because they were just like little, little strips of of pavement in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they were gorgeous. And wow. you fly in there, you know, just touch down on, and they were all short, so you know they were challenging because mm-hmm. you had to touch down right on the right spot, get stopped quickly. Uh, but um, it, it, beautiful flights, you know, on little island chains in and out of the uh, Pacific. And then, like, the airport that you go, oh, I don't want to go here. <laughs> Is there any particular, like, um, just because it's so hard to land on or it's so busy or just? Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I assume yeah. New York has to be one of yeah, them. Yeah, right? Newark can be that way sometimes. Well, like, Newark on a rainy day, uh, you know, on a, or on a, on a bad weather day is you, you can expect, you know, maybe there's going to be headaches, delays, Things like that, right. but you know, uh, I fly out of that airport all the time because uh, it's nonstop. Like when I went, yeah. when I was a courier for my brother's company, he um, would go up there, and I, and I guess you realize like it's this plane, plane, plane. Yeah. Like it just, and you can see the headlights of five planes back, yeah, and it just one after the other. It's yeah. like it never stops. Yeah, uh, I enjoy flying to South and Central America for you know the destinations to go there. I like I like those places, but. The actual flying part sometimes is is kind of it, you, it's going to be more work just because they don't have the same infrastructure first world countries do you know their radios aren't going to be as good right. not as clear they have less of them uh, their uh, services aren't as good there sometimes you know at certain places the maintenance isn't as good the runway is more beat up there's a lot of little things you know uh, so that's that can that can play into it too sometimes and then you know. When you go overseas, how do you deal with language barriers? I mean, I mean I'm sure everybody either speaks English or, you know, figure it out, but with accents and trying to understand uh-huh. people, because just because somebody can speak English doesn't mean yeah. they can speak it well. And, you know, thick accents can make all the difference. Ironically, some of the hardest people to understand are the Scottish. Oh, <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah. Some that. of my favorite music bands I've seen interviewed are from Scotland. You have yeah. no idea what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, 
So uh, it's everyone that works, uh, you know, in international airlines, they have to speak English, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the language is going to be easy. Right. So um, you get, the good thing is the more you do it, the more you get used to the way certain countries say things and right. do things. And so you get, uh, you, you kind of get your ear tuned to that, but it's, it's kind of hard at first, you know, you getting getting used to that. And sometimes you just have to take your time, ask people to repeat. Uh, but um you know, there's uh, other. There's some places where they speak adequate English to do their normal air traffic control functions, but once you go off script, Uh-oh. it gets difficult. So I, I remember, you know, I was talking to the Japanese on a flight from Guam to Japan, and we had a maintenance issue, and they weren't going to be able to fix it where we landed in Japan. We were fine, safe to continue, but there wasn't proper maintenance to address the problem or, or parts where we were going, so... They asked us to turn around and go back to where we left, to Guam, to go get it addressed there. And it took me about, you know, 15 minutes of trying to explain over the radio to the Japanese controllers that, you know, we want to turn around and go back to our destination airport because they're used to their script. They're used to the same call over Mm -hmm. and over again all the time. And now I'm going off script trying to explain to them. So, you know, I rephrase four or five different ways with them, you know, that I want to go back. Finally, they got... They got the idea and we worked it out. But, you know, those are kind of some of the international challenges that come up wow. in different places. So, That's pretty wild. Yeah. Matt, you had a question about a type of what, landing or taking off? Oh, okay. So there's this, like, technique I heard of crabbing. Oh, yeah. Um, when you're, like, landing in high, high wind, how does that work? Yeah, so uh, crabbing is basically, um, if, basically it's angling the airplane into the wind. So if you actually looked at an airplane up in the sky, I don't know if you've ever seen like another airplane flying under you and it looks like you're up here. It looks like they're flying sideways because the airplane is actually, it's not flying like this, but it's moving with the wind current. So once you get close to the ground, you can actually see that in effect. So if you think I'm landing on a runway, right, and I've got a strong crosswind coming away. So if I flew straight, it would blow me off the runway. I'd never touch down. I'd touch down over in the weeds to the side. So what you do is you angle into the wind. So you're pointed this way, but your runway is out here (laughs) on front. So you're flying like this. Then once you get close to the ground, what you do is you use your rudder to kick the nose straight and you drop the wing a little bit to keep you on the center line. And then a lot of times we'll touch down one wheel, other wheel, nose to do it. So that's just, that's a crosswind technique for landing. Yeah. Yeah, called crabbing into the wind, and and you'll see it. You'll see it in boats, also. You know. Well, yeah, boats should steer into the wave, right? Because if it gets hit broadside, it rolls. But if you, right. they, they always try to go nose into the wave. Into the yeah. wave, but also there's a ocean current when they're you know just out on the water. You know, okay. even a cruise ship or whatever. So they're not, they're not. Even though they're pointed one direction, they're actually moving a different direction because they have to overcome the current. That I think I've seen from just sitting like on the beach or something. You look at yeah. that. That ship doesn't look like it's going right. Like it's like it's like it misaligned. Yeah, yeah, like a car that's a little crooked or something. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah I definitely have seen that. Yeah, and up at altitude, if you ever get a chance and you notice a plane passing below or above you, you're looking out the window. It, it's kind of it's kind of funny to watch yeah. them when they go by close to you because they <laughs> they're flying sideways. So it's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, that's pretty that wild. is an interesting thing. So, what are some of your craziest passenger type stories? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. I guess, yeah. I guess there's got to be a lot. I mean, especially today, everybody's wound so yeah. tight. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, you know, t when you're regularly carrying, you know, 200 to 400 people, you know, there's bound to be one or two on every flight. Fortunately, as pilots, we don't directly deal with a lot of it. But, um, you know, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, people show up to the airport already kind of tired and a little frustrated for, you know, one reason or another. A couple drinks kind of, in them, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll snap on the way. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I mean, one of, the, one of the craziest ones that we almost had to land for was um, we were on a flight to Europe somewhere, and um, it was somewhere in England. And uh, there was, uh, you know, two passengers, this lady with an English guy, you know, behind her. And, um, you know, somehow he knocked her seat, you know, some way, you know, disturbed her. And, and she stood up in the middle of the night on a, on a, you know, dark plane and starts screaming at him, you know. <laughs> and, you know, don't touch my seat. And, and, I mean, made it made it seem like it was a really, right. like, you know, a, a, a massive offense. And she would not calm down. I mean, it was – we were fortunate that day. We had very good experienced flight attendants that were used to dealing with people because I just – I mean, she became so irate about this about this thing and was, you know, made, made such a scene that we were worried the plane couldn't continue. We were trying to figure out, like, was some crime committed here? What, what had happened, you know? And um, they managed to – to separate them, but I mean, uh, when I say this, I mean it seems pretty nonchalant. But I mean, this I was from what I was told from the flight tents went on for about twenty minutes. Wow! So if you think mm -hmm. about calming down a situation like that for like twenty minutes, you know, um, it's yeah, that's uh, it's hard to imagine. So I mean, while this twenty minutes is playing out, we got a call, you know, ten minutes in, hey, this is what's going on, and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to continue because this person's not calming down, and we're considering, you know, landing in Iceland or, you know, something right. like that, you know. But uh, eventually they got it under control, got everybody separated, got on the ground, let the authorities handle it. Um, there's, you know, medical things that happen all the time, you know. Uh, I would, we're, you know, worried about a heart attack, low blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Some people get on a plane with pre-existing conditions that they don't mention, and then, you know, they happen on, on route, you know, and... Um, have you ever had anybody die on your plane? Like, Fortunately, you know? that hasn't happened with me yet. It's been close. There's one guy we were sure we were going to lose, and and then he actually, like, when we landed, it was better. We got up and left. His but his blood pressure was like his heart rate was like down to like 30 beats a minute. And we're you know there's fortunately usually there's multiple doctors on board right. and you know checking taking vitals and stuff. But I mean we're like you know we're going New York to L.A. And um, we declared a medical emergency with air traffic control. And so we were speeding into L.A. trying to land as quick as we could because we were just about there. And the quickest thing to do is just going to be to land there. And by the time we landed, he'd gotten a little better, got up and walked off. Wow. And <laughs> talked to him. He said, yeah, he just he, he, he wasn't feeling great when he got on the plane, but he wanted to go see his doctor. <laughs> so we're like, oh, you know, not a good idea. Like if, for, you know, if you're not feeling good, definitely – Skip the yeah, flight. Right. Um, but there, there's weird stuff that happens all the time. I mean, um, when I used to do that Guam flight to Hawaii, there you're kind of, you, you, you leave Guam and you're kind of on your own on these, you know, minimally occupied islands going all the way across. And we had one guy in the back. He got on. He looked a little shaky getting on the plane, but he seemed all right. He said he was going to be good to just sit there. And I, he must have, you know taking some medication or something on the way, and he was just not with it at all, mm -hmm. you know. And here we are making our way across a very long day, 
on an island chain on our last flight, which is a five-hour flight. And the, we, uh, this guy had just, you know, kind of he, – he was conscious, but he's not really aware – Lost all control of his bowel movements. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I felt so bad. There were a bunch of nurses on the flight that were helping out. I felt so bad for them who were probably on vacation, you right. know. Went back helping with that, and it's just, you know, things things like that just come up, you know. Uh, yeah, the most common things I think that we, that we see are, you know, get, getting ready to take off and someone's intoxicated or something right. like that, and it doesn't seem like you're going to be able to complete the flight with them. Yeah. You know, those have... Those have come up over the years and things like that, you know, but I mean, really when you consider the number of people that we carry for the most part, it's, it's pretty good. Um, you know, I was flying when, you know, closer to nine 11, when security went, you know, security was much heightened and there were always concerns, you know, about, you know, who could be a terrorist threat, things like that, you know, and, um, would come up, um, but it's, you know, fortunately, it's, it's been very rare in the airlines. How long have you been a pilot, a commercial airline pilot? Commercial? So, uh, well, I flew with a regional airline since 03, so about 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, you know, with a major airline, 16 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very so. cool. Has okay, there been no. any problem with... Um, Snakes or like spiders? Complain. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, no. We we haven't had any snake outbreaks. Yeah, uh, we we have. You know, there are flights. You know, where you carry interesting things. Sometimes, you know, like you'll have things in the cargo hold. You know, and now you know in this day and age they've got emor- emotional support animals. Yeah, so I was just going to ask you about kind that. of push the push the limit for what should yeah. be accepted. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately, nothing too too crazy out of the out of the norm on any of my flights. You know, I've heard of other flights with like emotional support monkey and things like that, but <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, fortunately, no no snake outbreaks. Um, okay, now you've mentioned the triple seven a couple of times. So, in your opinion, what really happened with MH three seventy? The Malay the Malaysian oh, the Malaysian, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I couldn't even begin to guess. I, I was sitting there, you know, like everyone else, you know, wondering. Um, it's, yeah, I, I mean, what seems most likely is that it went out of radar contact, had some sort of emergency, and they haven't found the wreckage, you know. But, you know, that's that's just what seems the most probable. But, um, you know, it's anyone's guess, you know, as to what could have happened there because – you know, absent of finding the wreckage, the black box, you know, it's, right. a, there's a lot of different things that could have happened. So, yeah. Was there anything learned from it? Was there anything, any changes, anything made that, no, you know, sometimes really. accidents happen and massive yeah. changes happen because of that. It's not, yeah. you know, it's, and I was just curious if there was any ever changes because it was odd that like they said, the transponder signal turned off at some point. Yeah. Why they believe the plane was still in the air, whether they know it was manual or somebody did it intentionally, yeah. you don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, it's uh, there's there there's been none. I mean, I would maybe out there. I'm not sure what their governments have done there. Maybe they've extended the radar coverage mm-hmm. area because I mean, there was a, a small area that they could have had radar coverage. You know, it wasn't like the Atlantic or the Pacific. But yeah, it was very very strange. I mean, but you know, to uh, you know, for me, to, my my guess is you know, 
speculation is the same as sure. anyone else. Yeah. So, you know, I, I could come up with lots of creative ideas about what could have happened. <laughs> and but. they have had a couple of creative... I just saw a special on it, and there are some off-the-wall ideas. Sure. It's, it's like <laughs> nobody would do... You know, off-the-wall stuff. Fun to speculate, but, yeah, it's, you know, absent of any decent proof, you know, it really doesn't do much for the well, I think the, the problem is where it landed, that the ocean bottom there is hilly and valley and not like, not like the Atlantic Ocean, which yeah. is... Yeah. So it's tough to and the, the vastness of it, I know that they yeah. sent some of those submersibles down, but yeah. they just said like that's like a needle in a haystack. Yeah, even that's true. even smaller than that. Yeah, it could break. It could have broken up and disintegrated and unpacked and all that. It could have. Yeah, yeah. I find it weird that you know you would think that some identifiable identifiable wreckage would right. wash up on didn't, shore somewhere. Didn't, didn't one of the wings fly uh, turn up on one of the islands? I'd heard that there was something, but I'm not, you know, I never heard that it was confirmed that it, that it yeah, was from that plane. So I, yeah, I just don't know. If you lose your rudder control f- flying, are you completely disabled at that point? Is that? Uh, so not completely disabled, but I mean, it's. I just watch it. That's why I'm Yeah, no, it's, it. it's, well, to lose your rudder, it would be a multiple system failure because okay. there's backups to it. Mm-hmm. But if somehow you lost all of it, you know. This plate, it's stuck. It turned, like, yeah. and it got stuck in that position. And it got stuck. Yeah. Well, if it was stuck in a position and you couldn't override it, I mean, it's, you haven't completely lost it, but it's a big ha- handicap. Right. So there's a famous aircraft accident. I don't know if you know the, the famous United Airlines Sioux City Accident, oh yeah, I think that happened when I was a child. Yeah, is that the one that went like almost like when it hit the ground, it flipped head? Yeah, I remember that vividly of it. Yeah. So what actually happened? Something that they learned from it was that um, they had what's called an uncontained engine failure, meaning that the engine failed and some of the pieces came out of the engine casing. Well, one of the pieces just happened to sever the right point in the airplane. Airplanes aren't made like this anymore, but that one was where it severed all the hydraulic lines basically removing all the controls. Wow. So the only thing they had was thrust, asymmetric thrust. They didn't have rudder, they didn't have uh, steering, and they didn't have um, an elevator, which is up and down. So uh, because of that, uh, you know, that, that, that accident uh, is hailed as one of the greatest successes in uh, aviation history because without all those controls the crew of that airplane was still able to salvage, to get the airplane on the ground, and some people were able to walk away. A uh, very famous uh, United captain named Al Haynes the, in the Sioux City accident. So, yeah, he, uh, they were all able to work together. One person was controlling the rudders. The other was giving commands. Wow. One person was talking to ATC, and, I mean, it seemed completely unsalvageable, but they, they managed yeah, I remember that. So, I can remember that. I guess yeah. flipped head like a long ways over top. Yeah. I remember that. I remember the Hawaiian flight where the roof ripped off. Oh, yeah. That yeah. happened. And then there was another one. I just, yeah, I don't remember it now, but there was yeah. like three big ones I remember when you I was younger. TWA 800, the explosion. Yes. Over the, yeah. 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 That was a big one. And then there's a yeah. lot of smaller ones. The Lockerbie ones. one, too. That, yeah. that all happened at my times as well. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I mean, the aviation now has such a history. You know, every mistake that can be made pretty much has been made. And uh, on the downside, you know, is that, you know, those things happen, but on the plus side, it's made it safer now because all those things have been learned from. 
That's the most amazing part that shows like why planes crash. I don't like it for the crash. I, I like it because they did the investigation. Yeah. It is amazing what they can find out from tiny little shards under a microscope and understanding temperatures and whether it was on fire or the wind and it's, it's how it tore apart and the yeah. stress on it. It's just amazing. And they work everything backwards until they figure it out. Yeah. What's it like to have everything you do, like record it? And like, do they do, um, are, is your uh, vitals constantly being registered when you're flying a plane no. or no? Yeah. So just your voice isn't like, so every conversation yeah. is always recorded. Yeah, well, everything on an air traffic control is recorded. Then there's the black box in the airplane, mm -hmm. which records, you know, whatever's going on. And more than that is that every little thing the airplane does is recorded. Thanks. Is recorded on a computer. So, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Right. Do you have to watch your language? Like, you drop an anvil on your foot. Do you have to watch your language? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, the, the, the black box is... is for emergencies or uh, accidents and stuff. But somebody's in trouble but, for bringing the anvil on the plane. Yeah, well, Wiley, Wiley, <laughs> Coyote. You, uh, <laughs> drop an anvil on your foot while you're talking to air traffic control and you say something, <laughs> that would be recorded, you know. Gotcha. So... I've heard a couple um, on different videos, some arguments between pilots and air traffic. They don't like the way a tone of voice or something and it gets a little testy. That know, happens sometimes, yeah. You, you definitely when stress you, you never see that at you know small you know middle of nowhere airports but uh -huh. when stress levels go up in places like Newark and San Francisco I just and can't imagine especially that. on the ground the ground controllers that just get swamped inundated with airplanes and airplanes are sitting waiting for gates people are getting frustrated you know it, yeah then you know levels seem to rise but you know fortunately you know most are professionals and they've been doing it long enough that they understand it goes with the territory. Uh -huh. But, you know, everybody, you know, sure. everybody hits their limits sometimes, yeah, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, you're an airline pilot. What is your favorite movie that involves airplanes? <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely one of them off the bat would be, uh, would be Airplane. You know, oh, that's my classic. favorite. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to say. I yeah. think that's a classic for, for pilots as far as humor and all, all this stuff. And uh, pilots actually will quote that uh -huh. in situations. Um, <laughs> I really love Top Gun. I mean, I loved it as okay. a kid in the new one. I like that now. Um, I'm trying to think what else was really good. Um, I, I, the movie I thought was okay, but I love the scene. Um, the one with Denzel Washington where he flips the plane upside oh, down. Oh, flight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, that was cool. At least yeah. that, that whole thing that was, was really neat. Yeah, that was really entertaining. Uh, that was good. They did a flight, uh, a movie with Tom Hanks based on the... Um, Gully. Yeah, that yeah, was awesome. Really, yeah, that was a great that was movie. great too. Yeah, they yeah. say that they used the um, actual voice box transcripts yeah. to do the language of the scene, like they yeah. didn't alter anything. Well, yeah. I was kind of worrying about that because at the interview they're asking them like, "When's the last time you had a drink?" And Aaron Eckhart said, "I don't drink," and Scully said, "I had a glass of wine with dinner two days ago before the flight." Do they monitor like what you guys do before a flight or all, or is it? So there's um, we have random drug testing. That happens uh, and drug and alcohol testing, so that that's monitored uh, somewhat, you know, in, in, to the extent. But and we have lots of regulations that we have to follow. And right. you know, if somebody saw you drinking within the window where you're not allowed to, you know, it's kind of like much, much with you know with a car. You know, there's a responsibility. So there's no there's no party in the cockpit going. On. <laughs> Sadly, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I heard stories about what it was like to fly in the seventies. Yeah, thirties, forties, fifties. You know, but yeah, not What's, so much. What's the um, 
the show's called, like, I can't remember what it's called. When you're at a certain point where you're beginning the landing process, there's to be no external talk except for yeah. the landing or the tape, whatever that process is. Like, that's all you're allowed to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's called sterile cockpit. Okay, there yeah. you go. Yep. Yeah, cool. they say, so you're not you're below 10,000 feet. You're not supposed to have any conversations that aren't directly related to safety of flight or operation of the aircraft. Okay, now I do have to ask this. My wife has a master's in computer information science. So we'll, we'll be watching TV, and they'll be like, Rebooting the mainframe and five, fourth, and she'll get mad. She'll throw things at the TV, and like it doesn't happen that way. So when you're watching an airplane movie, and it doesn't happen the way it should, you're like, it doesn't happen that way. You can't just like pull the flaps up, or <laughs> she gets mad. Do you like? Yeah, I think you know. Whenever you have like ex- some level of expertise in something, you know, you can kind of pick apart the inaccuracies. Oh, yeah. But I think a lot of you know movies and TV is kind of like suspension of disbelief. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's like you know, yeah, you know, you see that, and you're like, eh, that's not really how it happened. But I can still enjoy this, you know. But really, modern day. They do. They've done more and more. If you look at stuff in, from like the '80s and '70s, I mean, they just went with wild inaccuracies, just you know, f- for whatever. But nowadays, you know, they pay more attention. They care more about that stuff. Cool. So you know what it gets me more is um, journalists that don't, you know, that that will write about things and they just have the facts wrong. You know, okay. because, and and I understand, you know, they're not experts in the field, but you know, a lot of times the whole context changes because they don't understand a basic. Thing about what they're writing about so you could probably relate to this with martial arts when you see it in movies or you know. even worse i can relate to it being the son of a police officer yeah we were not allowed to watch like because it just that would never happen i was yeah. a cop for 25 years i never shot my gun yeah. this guy shoots somebody every week you know yeah. it's like so he's like turn the only things we were allowed to watch was a comedy show called barney miller oh yeah which my dad would say that's the most real police show ever made <laughs> I've and, heard that before, though. Yes, and Columbo. We were allowed to watch oh, yeah. Columbo. He liked that. But other than that, like everything else was just a whole explanation of why this doesn't happen, why this doesn't work. Now, with an air travel professional, why did it take 50 years to put wheels on luggage? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. A lot of this stuff has been well, – what's even worse is why do they sell, you know – airline luggage that doesn't fit <laughs> right that, <laughs> yes know. it's I feel more egregious you know poor people get there on the plane and they try and squeeze it on there and you know and do they ever yeah. right oh. do they ever yeah. try to squeeze that bag into that little box i think i think you know kind of a testament now the, the good thing is you know people complain a lot about things with flying but they never really complain about safety you know it's gotten to the point where you know nobody most people don't really worry about that as like a thing that they complain about like right. you know this flight was dangerous. It's, you know, the flight was delayed. It was slow. The airport, you know, security was brutal. The lines were long, you know, so. I've never com- felt unsafe on a flight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this yeah, is fine, you know. I was always under the impression that pilots were all ex-military guys, though. That was my one of the longest. I was like, well, they're yeah. not. What do you mean they're not? <laughs> I think that's a holdover from kind of the Vietnam era. Vietnam, you know? yeah. After that, they started having a pile of shortage because they were making the mandatory age. Yep. And they started realizing we have to get we have to replace them now. The military pilots yeah. are aging out kinda. Yeah, and I mean the nineties saw kind of a turnover from the traditional military route to you started seeing a lot more people coming the civilian route. And yeah. now more pilots are civilian, but there's still a good mix of military and yeah, I mean I think it, it definitely helps having a you know, a wide array of backgrounds. I think it helps with the pilot training and you know, with as far as just overall knowledge goes. Is pilot shortage the biggest challenge to airlines today? Or I would say for airline management, it's 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 the biggest. Well, I would say there's two. 
big ones. One is just the lack of real estate, you know, as more and more travelers come every year and people fly more and it becomes more part of everyday life, you're still limited by these airstrips, you know, and then most of them can't grow any bigger. You know, you look at Philadelphia, uh, New York, where are they going to go? You know, how are they going to get bigger to accommodate more aircraft? Um, so that's going to be a challenge as well as dealing with the delays and, um, I mean, they could definitely modernize the air traffic control system to help with some of that, but that's going to, you know, take a lot of government money. Uh, and then, yeah, that pilot shortage is a big one now okay. uh, coming up, and that's going to be that's going to be something that, uh, you know, hopefully they're going to address. It seems like people are aware of it, so they're taking steps, but I think, you know, definitely it's going to be something that we're going to be hearing about mm-hmm. for the next decade or so. Well, do you have a timeline, like, if you fly... If you fly Monday and Tuesday, you can't fly when. Is there so many time downtime you have to have between flights? Yeah, it, it's it's and it's it's nothing easily structurable like that. It's oh, okay. very complicated. But uh, we, there's a bunch of running clocks. Basically, you have how much time can you fly in a year? How much time can you fly in a month? How much time can you fly in a week? How many hours can you do in you know consecutively? How much rest you need to have after you do a flight? So, you know. Basically, you know, long international flight, generally you need a day off. Long Asia flight, usually you need a day and a half, two days off. You can't generally do more than 100 hours in a, in a month. So, oh, okay. you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, those are kind of, but there's that, a lot of rules that we have to track. That's that, actual flying time, right? Of like actual not, flying time, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's what they have to measure, but if you think about it, like you do, you're working a lot more than what you're actually flying, right? right? You're at the air. A lot of times, you know, you're the most fatiguing things are on the ground on long delays, right? Where you're not actually flying. So, yeah. But they have other limits, duty day limits, which is once you start duty, once you report to the airport. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of things. You know, you if you've ever had a flight where they say the pilot's timed out, what they're talking about is they are now going past their legal limit where they can continue to work and they have to go rest. So. Okay. Yeah, because uh, the FAA has some that are, you know, very hard, some rules set in stone where even if you wanted to, you really wanted to get everybody to their destination, you felt like you could take off in the next five minutes. You just can't legally do it. Hmm. So, so you're an hour from your destination. It's, sorry, folks, I just ran out, <laughs> so I'm going to go take a nap. And <laughs> yeah. Generally, it's legal. To, they, they have a saying, legal to start, legal to finish. Right. So you need to figure that out before you take off. You know sure. this is a three-hour flight. Before you take off, if you say, well – this three-hour flight is going to put me 15 minutes over my legal limit, so I can't take off now. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, but yeah, no, you never really hear about people stopping along the way because, you know, that's got to be calculated before you go. Very cool. So. Very cool. Yeah. All right, before we wrap up, I have a couple trivia questions for you. Oh, boy. Uh, it's going to be my I, weakness. Uh, what's the most popular general aviation aircraft in the world, do you know? I would have to say Cessna. Very good. Yeah. Cessna 172. Uh, what's the maximum weight allowed for a small general aviation aircraft? Is it 14,500? You were close. 12,500. Oh, 12,500. Okay. Yeah. Very so. cool. Really appreciate you sitting down with me. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much. This is really awesome. Me. This was fun. Thanks a lot. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Very cool. Thank you, everybody. Have a great one.